0: So, Father, we're convinced that none of us are here today by accident. and We don't know the particular reason why any of us are here. Some of us don't know ourselves, but you do. So we ask that through what we sing and what we pray and what we, what's spoken, that you will speak. We also, Lord, we want you to hear us this morning, all of us that are able. We, we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And because the entire universe is absorbed in praising you, we will as well. So we declare that today. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's see. What do I say by way of introduction? I have prayed that God would speak today To each of us that he would make application. Today's message is a tough one. I had someone come to me between the service and ask me if I thought it was appropriate for boys and girls, honestly. So boys and girls, I do think it is, but uh, forewarned, today's a tough one. We're going to go through the message today, and at the end, we're going to drop off, and we're going to let God make application to each of our lives and each of our hearts, and, and that's been my prayer that, that would happen. I'm gonna kick us off this morning by praying one more time. And as I pray, I wanna also be praying for, this is not a Catholic church. I know many of you have come from Catholic backgrounds, but this has just been another week of revelation about the church doing wrong to those that are most vulnerable, and that is a horrible thing. And we acknowledge that, you know, none of us get what we don't get. And we're all pretty flawed, so we are going to pray for God's people and we're going to pray especially for those who have been victims of the church and not just the stuff that we heard about this week, but generally speaking, some of you have felt hurt by churches before and in some cases justifiably so. So let's pray before we get started. Father, our hearts are grieved and sometimes we don't even know what to think, how to process this so we do what we can. We fall on you. We pray uh, specifically that you would be merciful and that you would comfort and heal those that have been hurt by your people. We feel the joy and the privilege of being Enabled and called to represent you, and we are so sorry when we do it very, very badly. Help us, and forgive us of our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Nahum. Let's hear a whoop-whoop. You are the only people who have ever whoop-whooped about Nahum. I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Nahum Schwartz, who wrote an article in a periodical called The Mosaic that was entitled The Discomforting and Urgent Message of the Prophet Nahum. And it gave me a lot of insight into Nahum and some of the specifics this morning. So thanks to him. I also want to give you another resource. I don't know if you've seen this before, but I recommend it highly. It's called thebibleproject.com. And it's a group of folks that have produced videos that explain... I think now every book in the Bible, they also have some kind of general thematic videos. They're very, very good. Well done, snappy, and also terrific understanding, terrific theology. To help set us up this morning, let's get a big picture view of the Bible. We're going to center in on uh, Nahum in a minute, but let's see this two and a half minute video about the Bible. So watch this just to kind of get us seated in the right place.
1: The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and Life and the human struggle. So, there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures begin to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets, and this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophets' point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now... There were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So, this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes.
0: So we have, for the last five weeks, been working our way through the book of Jonah. It's one of the minor prophets, or Nevi'im. We ended Jonah's story last week by acknowledging that really Jonah is not a very good prophet. God had asked Jonah to go preach to Israel's arch enemies. Jonah responded by disobeying God as hard as he could. In fact, he pushed out to sea in an effort to run from God, only to experience a violent storm. He was thrown overboard by a group of sailors who suspected that he was the source of their trouble, and he was abandoned by these same sailors to drown. At which point, he's swallowed by a large sea creature and carried to dry land. He ends up repenting beautifully repenting and going and obeying God fully. I mean, who wouldn't? He then went to the dreaded enemy, the Assyrians, and he he preached at them. And against all odds, they responded and a spiritual revival ensued. At that point, Jonah's story ends with him sulking and feeling sorry for himself and angry at God for having mercy on the Assyrians. Now, while we learn a great deal about God and about ourselves through Jonah's story, as we said, Jonah was not a very good prophet, but he's a popular one. If you're familiar with the Old Testament stories at all, you know Jonah's story. Nahum, on the other hand, was a really good prophet. He faithfully delivered God's message with some of the richest language and some of the finest literary Hebrew in the whole Old Testament. But Nahum is as unfamiliar as Jonah is familiar. He's probably the most ignored prophet in the entire Old Testament. And among those who don't ignore him altogether, many don't like him. In fact, he's probably the most unpopular prophet, but he's an extremely important one. And critically important, I think, for our understanding of the character and activity of God. So this morning, I want to do three things. First, I want us to talk about why people don't generally like Nahum. We need to be honest. Secondly, I want us to look at the essence of Nahum's message. And third, I want to look at why he's so important for us to hear. I want us to start by listening to some of Nahum. So we're going to read the first chapter of Nahum, chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. But great in power, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time because once is enough. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for your vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Why is Nineveh so unpopular? <laughs> it may be obvious. Very little is known about the identity of this prophet. He claims to be an Elkishite in the first verse, and we don't even know where that was. Clues that come mostly from the third chapter place the timing of the writing of this book around 650 B.C., that's 650 years before Jesus. This would put him about 100 years after the Assyrian revival that happened under Jonah's preaching. By the way, we know from historical records that that revival was very short-lived. The book of Nahum is 47 verses divided into three chapters. That's why it's considered to be a minor prophet. For example, compare it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has 1,364 verses in 52 chapters. But among the 15 Old Testament prophets, Nahum occupies an especially obscure place. Listen to this. Of all the liturgical readings for Jewish Sabbaths and holidays, not one comes from the book of Nahum. And only a single phrase from it appears anywhere in any Jewish liturgy. And that phrase is actually a quote from the book of Exodus. Nahum also receives very little attention in the long history of rabbinical writings, writing commentaries and writing thoughts about the Old Testament writings. According to one tabulation, of the thousands and thousands of pages of rabbinical literature, there are less than 40 references to Nahum. Probably the best known modern day Jewish study of the prophets by Abraham Heschel contains not a single entry for Nahum. Nahum has fared no better in Christian worship. Some of you may know he is completely absent from the readings in the Roman Catholic Sunday lectionary, and those of you who grew up in a more liturgical setting, also from the revised common lectionary used in many Protestant churches, Nahum does not appear. He's pretty much ignored. He's also been treated with hostility by some Christian scholars who do pay attention to him. Hostility. Some have even called for his removal from the Bible. In his commentary on Nahum, a Dr. Dwayne Christensen observed that some of the book's readers regard it as, this is a quote, ethically and theologically deficient. He quotes one scholar as asking this, listen to this, Will any of us ever have the courage to admit that the book really is rather a disgrace to the two religious communities of whose canonical scriptures it forms so unwelcome a part? Wow, that's a survey of just how unpopular Nahum is. But why? I believe this book has a message we shouldn't ignore, so why is it so often ignored? And worse, disdained. Well, first of all, let's face it. Many of the prophetic sections of the Old Testament are just hard for us to understand. They take a bit of work, honestly. You're not going to open the book of Nahum on Tuesday morning and read. He summons his picked troop, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. You don't read that and think, wow, that has just rocked my world. I can face my day now. It often takes a bit of work to understand the prophets. But more than that, Nahum in particular is not only hard to understand, but what we do understand is hard to read. This book is about God's wrath, and we don't like that message. God's patience has ended, and he's seeking vengeance. In fact, there's three chapters of unrelenting predictions about vengeance. It's hard to read. I want to take you on a little exercise. What is the worst TV or movie villain you can imagine? Not you imagine, that you've seen, that you know of, I'm not talking about, you know, a Darth Vader who's scary, but, I don't know, kind of friendly. I'm talking about somebody, okay, it's not friendly, but I'm talking about somebody that you want to jump into the screen and become part of the story. You can't stand it. Who is the worst TV movie villain that you know? I wanted to put... Uh, that villain in our heads to set the table for the message of Nahum. Because some people struggle with Nahum because they believe this message is beneath the character of God. That really is why he's so unpopular. It's consistently written about. So what is the essential message of Nahum? Our second question. Here's the message. God had had enough of the Assyrians. He would punish them for their history of unimaginable violence. Justice would be served. In other words, wrath and vengeance are a part of God's character and must be part of our understanding of God. He is slow to anger, but eventually he does respond with anger. God is patient, but eventually his patience does run out. So who were these Assyrians? The Assyrian Empire was centered in what is now northern Iraq, For much of its long history, it sprawled over present-day Turkey, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, even extending at times into Libya and Cyprus to the west and south, and Iran to the east. See this map? It's kind of the entire scope of the Middle East and more at various times in its history and at its zenith. Here for 300 years, this is the expanse of the Assyrian Empire. In one shape or another, the empire lasted for more than 1,500 years before finally falling to the Babylonians in 612. Remember that date, 612 BC. Assyria was a militaristic, cruel, exploitative force. They were known for their unspeakable mistreatment of the living and the dead. They deployed the largest standing army in the ancient world, which ruthlessly invaded neighboring countries, extorting huge tribute from the peoples it subjugated, and then used the plunder to enrich a noble class and to undertake further military ventures. In other words, they were basically inhumanly cruel pirates. Their principal contribution to the development of civilization was the invention of an early form of ethnic cleansing. They tortured and killed whole populations, and for ones they left alive, they practiced the wholesale removal of them from their home territories, often reducing them to debasing forms of slavery that don't need to be described here. The result was usually the obliteration of tribal, ethnic, and religious identities. Whole peoples ceased to exist because of the march of the Assyrians. Assyria treated ancient Israel just the same way, They destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and oppressed the southern kingdom of Judah to near extinction. Specifically, they forced Judah to pay homage to them in crippling taxes for 100 years. In the final years of the 8th century B.C., the low 700s, the reforming king Hezekiah of Judah wanted to loosen Assyria's hold over Judah, so the Assyrians went to war. They devastated the Judean countryside, and in 701 BC, they laid siege to Jerusalem, the last stronghold of the Jewish people. I want you to see this chart. It was the best one I could find. That's kind of outlining for you four periods of intense Assyrian pressure and influence and oppression over Israel. You see that it begins 800, 791 to 740. It says, the reigns of King Uzziah and King Jotham. And then the blue arrow up top are some of the Assyrian rulers. You may know some of those names. The blue arrow is Shalmaneser destroying the northern kingdom in 722. You get to the very end and you get to Sennacherib. And Sennacherib destroyed, utterly destroyed the Judean countryside. And then he attacked Jerusalem in 701 BC. But a miraculous thing happened. The Assyrian army, poised on the brink of success, suddenly fell back, leaving Jerusalem unconquered. They never did this. According to the account given in three different books of the Bible, a deadly plague swept through the Assyrian army, forcing them to retreat. Listen, Assyrian forces account for this campaign. They make no mention of the plague, interestingly, but they reluctantly acknowledge that Sennacherib abandoned the siege on Jerusalem just on the verge of victory, and they offer no explanation. This withdrawal permitted Judah to survive for more than another century when they were eventually ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So that was 701 B.C. Now fast forward 50 years to 650 B.C. and around then and enter the period of Nahum. At that point, Assyria was the world's only superpower Their influence hung ominously over every major decision in every major capital in the known world. They had perpetrated unimaginable savagery against every neighbor. They stood unchallenged, and their deeds stood unpunished. And when you read the chronicles of the warfare of Assyria and their advancement, I can't help but think, George Gahungu, of the kinds of atrocities that your country witnessed, the country of Burundi. And, And I also think of the stories that we're hearing today from Syria. And I can tell you that the things we hear from our world today would make the Assyrians feel very comfortable. In fact, they might think that they lack creativity in their cruelty. In the world of that time, the average citizen of the ancient Near East, including the Jews, without question, was asking, is there a God? And if there is, what kind of God is he? So enter the prophet Nahum who answers that question. Give me the first through third verse. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum's prophetic message is unambiguous and full-throated. God is concerned with justice. He is slow to anger. He is profoundly patient, but his patience will run out and his anger will be expressed. And when it is, he will execute vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his chosen people. They will be delivered up to death and oblivion and good riddance to them. His message is the promise of divine deliverance and unbridled joy at the fall of the oppressor. Now, Nahum doesn't address Israel at all in his prophecy, so there's none of the reproach for Israel's bad behavior that we usually see in the prophets. Instead, he devotes himself entirely to both describing and unapologetically celebrating the downfall at the hands of God of Israel's oppressor. And he does so with vivid, sometimes vulgar language. Structurally, just a word about Nahum. Structurally, the book consists of three distinct but related parts, sometimes interwoven. First, there is an introductory hymn, which we read, which enthusiastically praises the God who, quote, takes vengeance and is filled with wrath, end quote, and who, while slow to anger, is great in power, and quote, will not leave the guilty unpunished. Continuing to quote him, they will be entangled among thorns and drunk with their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. Next, second part, Nahum turns his attention explicitly to Assyria. God expresses his determination to destroy and eliminate this great power. Chapter 1, verse 13, now will I break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Then in a series of vivid images in chapter 2, Nahum forecast Assyria's actual demolishment. Verse 3 of chapter 2. The shields of the soldiers are red, obviously with their own blood. Verse 5. Their picked troops stumble on their way. Verse 6. The river gates are thrown open. The palace collapses. Verse 7. The city will be exiled and carried away. Chapter 3, verse 3. Many casualties. Piles of, bo- of dead. Bodies without number. People stumble over the corpses. By the way, sprinkled in the midst of this, Nahum has a a word for Judah, and it's a word of deliverance. He says, celebrate your festivals, O Judah, fulfill your vow. And in chapter 2, he adds, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. Finally, third part, on top of this catalog of death and ruination, listen to this. Nahum adds what are usually described as verses of taunt. Chapter 3, verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirt over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. God, through Nahum, is talking smack to the Assyrians. And you don't want to be in a position where God is talking smack. At the very end of the book, we learn there's no hope here. Nahum offers no relief. This story will not have a happy ending for Assyria. The very end, the last two verses, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest, a euphemism for dying. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? So why is it important for us to hear the prophet Nahum? Well, first of all, because it's true. Within 30 years of Nahum's prophecy, the Assyrian Empire had collapsed suddenly and quickly in a way, honestly, that modern historians can't exactly explain. One worries about our country, doesn't one? But I think we need to hear this message for an even more important reason. More important. I want to share a story from an article Written by a pastor named Matt Woodley, and he's sharing the story that he heard from a British friend of his, a pastor named Mark Maynell. So this is a story that Mark Maynell relates. He says this: President Mobutu reigned as the dictator and president of the Dominican Republic of the Congo from 1965 to 1997. But after global political changes, Mobutu was forced out of power and the country collapsed and descended into conflict and chaos. British pastor Mark Maynell tells the story of his good friend, Ima, who witnessed many atrocities committed against his friends and family members during the time. He and his wife and three daughters fled east with nothing. After a few months of a miserable existence, fled into Uganda to live as refugees. After a few months of miserable existence, he walked past a local seminary and sensed that the Lord was calling him to ministry. His family had been living in one room without water or electricity with just enough to pay for one meal every two days. Maynell said that one evening they met in the seminary's tiny library and started talking as Imah opened his heart and shared the story of the violence and injustice he had witnessed. He started to openly weep despite the fact that African men rarely cry in public. Enema said these sobering words. You know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world. But I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. The British pastor Maynell commented, We in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, His mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need His perfect justice as well. I want to add a comment from a Dr. J.J. Roberts of Princeton Seminary. Dr. Roberts, he was actually addressing the idea that Nahum is unchristian because of his message. And because of specifically of his depiction of God's vengeance. Dr. Roberts said this, quote, One should beware of any bogus morality that dismisses vengeance as both inappropriate to humans and unworthy of God. While the desire to see vengeance done can be twisted and corrupted like any other human desire, it arises out of a sense of justice. And vengeance cannot be discarded without discarding the concern for justice as well. Without this frightening side, hear this, One could misread the portrait of the loving God as that of a passionless, doting, and undemanding dispenser of cheap grace. You and I live in a place of profound comfort and ease. We're surrounded by safety and beauty and order to a degree never before seen in human history. I know that's not true of every one of us all the time, and it's certainly not evenly true of all of us, but come on. We've got it really, really good. And we should and we sometimes do thank God for that. We've been blessed. There are many, many great things about our lives here. Many, many advantages. But one of the negatives is that our lifestyle tends to dull the spiritual senses. The book of Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We must not trifle with God, and our lives are designed to encourage just that. God is going to deal with injustice and sin. If you're a skeptic, I get it. I know this is hard, but honestly, I am bound to say this. God will not leave it unsaid. Every time someone acts against someone else in a way that diminishes or disintegrates their God-given dignity, that action will ultimately be responded to by God. Literally, there is hell to pay. There is a God He's very personal and he is personally involved in our world and with us and our actions have eternal consequences. God is going to judge. And while that gives us hope during those times when we see or especially when we experience awful injustice, it should also cause us to be afraid in those times when we are the perpetuators of injustice. When I was in high school, my grandmother she was losing herself a little bit, and it's already a matter of concern for my mother and her sisters and brother. My grandmother pulled me aside one time. I went over to her house to take care of something. She pulled me aside. She called me Eddie. She told me, Eddie, my grandfather, her grandfather, so my, helped me, great-great-grandfather, I think. My grandfather was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina. For those of you who are not from America, the Ku Klux Klan is the America's principal instrument of horrific racism. I don't even know if there was such a thing as a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina. But what I know is that this was a point of pride for my grandmother. I was not a brave kid, but I had enough of a sense of justice. And I said, ma'am, and she said, no, Eddie. That was when the Ku Klux Klan was good. And I said, ma'am, that's when they were killing people for no reason. And she said, you don't understand the story. My grandma was a really good woman. She helped build a church, literally and spiritually, that was influential throughout her town in the upper part of South Carolina. She personally supported dozens of missionaries, prayed for them every day. We don't get what we don't get. We don't see what we don't see. We need help. We're perpetrators of injustice in ways that we simply do not or refuse to see. We are in danger of falling into the hands of an angry God. Remember the video talked about how the Old Testament tells an epic story about God using these people to bring order out of the chaos of our world. And it builds up, the video says, to a hope that a new leader would come and renew all creation. And then the video ended by saying, and then the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, concludes, and this leader never comes. Well, he came. And his name is Jesus. And we need him desperately. We cannot get out of our own way. We don't see what we don't see. And we stand under the judgment of God apart from him. We need him so that we can escape God's angry, fierce retribution. We need Jesus. I want to end this morning in a different way. We're going to read just a little part of Psalm 96 together and I want us to read this responsively, and let's do this like an exclamation point to God's word for us today. Stand with me if you would. I will read the light print and you read the dark. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Pause for dramatic effect. Now, God is to be loved. God is to be honored. But we often forget he is to be feared. For all the gods of the nations are idols. Splendor and majesty are before him. So say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes. He will judge the world in righteousness.
2: Thank you so much for your love for us and for laying down your life on our behalf so that we don't receive the wrath and judgment of God. But Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are angered by injustice. And we pray that you would move against injustice wherever it is in other parts of the world closer to home, in ungodly circles, and in your church where there is injustice, we pray that you would bring justice and use us to be agents of justice where we work or in our neighborhoods or in our families. Give us the courage to speak up, to step in, to take action. We want to bring you honor and glory, Lord Jesus. I just pray that you would take our offering this morning, and that you would use it for your honor, your glory, for your work in our community. Hey, thank you for being here with us. I hope you have a great Sunday afternoon. You are dismissed. Go in peace.